Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church Podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rcc.church. Well, good morning. I'm glad that you are here as we continue to prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas. And this week we are going to allow what are probably some of the most unlikely but also uh, captivating figures in this Christmas narrative serve us as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. These shepherds um, seem to play what we could probably describe as an outsized role in the Christmas story, or at least in Luke's telling of the Christmas story. If you were to look at uh, the overall flow of Luke chapter 2, you would see that he summarizes the birth of Jesus in seven verses. It takes him a full seven verses to go from census to manger. Then, immediately after that, these shepherds, yes, they have to kind of share the billing with some angels, but these shepherds get 13 verses. Right? It seems like Luke feels like it's going to be beneficial for us to slow down and pay some attention to these men who in some ways are so unremarkable and in some ways play such a small part of the story yet seem to be key to understanding the overall flow of what we are to take from the Christmas story. These, plot, these shepherds in some ways are absolutely central to the plot line, even though we know almost nothing about it, right? If you were to try to make notes of like, what, okay, what do we know about these men? Um, it would be a very short list. They are almost certainly male. It would have been um, nearly unheard of for a woman to work as a shepherd 2,000 years ago. Um, there's no doubt that they would have been uneducated, again, almost certainly illiterate. Um, they definitely would have been poor, and they would have been considered social outcasts, right? Shepherds, their testimony was not accepted in a court of law, um, and they were just looked down on. The word on the street about shepherds is that they were largely a bunch of thieves, largely a bunch of street criminals um, that nobody wanted to come all that close to. So we have an overall sense of what their life might have looked like, but we know very little about them. We don't know how many of them are involved in this narrative in Luke chapter 2. We don't know how old they are. We don't know what their relationship was. Had they worked together for years, or did they just happen to be in the same place at the same time on a particularly important night? We have absolutely no idea what happens to them for the rest of their lives, we essentially just get this window into a couple of crucial hours in their lives. And even though we know nothing about them, we see that they play this outsized role in the story, and we recognize right from the beginning that these shepherds are somehow meant to grab our attention and to show us that this Jesus is going to confound the world's expectations, right? This idea of Jesus confounding expectations is all over Luke chapter 2. I mean, what kind of a king is born in a cave? This doesn't happen. What kind of king 
is placed in a manger, especially when you know that a manger would have been a feeding trough. That was his crib, that he was in a feeding trough. What kind of king on the night of his birth is visited by uninvited nomadic shepherds, right? And we always do this with the Christmas story where we're like, oh, this is so sweet and so nice and little baby Jesus welcomes the poor people in and they're there with the goats and the cows and it's all so nice and cute. That's not how Mary and Joseph would have experienced it. First of all, they're in absolute crisis, not particularly stoked that they had to take the field trip to Bethlehem so they could go become part of a census, the sole purpose of which was to impose a crushing burden of taxation from Rome. So they're not super happy about the overall landscape of the trip, yet alone they get there and nobody will let them come indoors so that she can give birth with a roof over her head. I mean, this is a failure of basic human decency. So these two poor, unwed teenagers go and find a little cave that they can hide out in, and she gives birth to a child in that moment, right? Joseph hadn't been to any of the prep classes that we go to now. Joseph wasn't like, oh, baby, I'm here with the breathing exercises. I know what to do. Don't worry. This is not a hygienic environment. There's nothing good about this scene. Mary and Joseph have been judged and condemned for months at this point. The more that little bulge in her stomach grew, the more people were like, "Mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm, know how that got there. And sure, she treasures in her heart. She's like, you really don't. But everybody else is like, "Uh, yeah, I do. And if you thought they were ostracized when there was a bump, imagine when she comes back carrying a baby. So they're there trying to put the pieces of their life together, clinging to this seemingly ludicrous hope that, oh, it's okay because he's the Messiah of all Israel. And he's the prince of peace when all of a sudden, hey, lady, we hear there's a baby. Can we come in and see him? I think this would have been the moment where Mary's like tempted to throw in the towel and be like, you got to be kidding me, right? I mean, she's not looking forward to a bunch of strangers coming in to see her, yet alone a bunch of strange men who reek of sheep. She's not like, oh, good, this is the moment that we've been waiting for. She's like, you have got to be kidding me. Yet, there is something about the character of God that this is precisely what happens. And this is precisely who comes to visit him. This Jesus somehow is going to confound everybody's expectations. Things that you never thought would happen are seemingly going to happen. And things that you would absolutely assume as a given are not going to happen. Just to add to the scandal, as this infant Jesus grows up, he falls into the habit of describing himself as a good shepherd, which again, we're like, oh yeah, I like that one. Jesus is a good shepherd. He just leads his little lambs back to safety. But shepherds were despised. Shepherds weren't worthy of any honor. There's this idea that somehow Jesus is going to give honor and dignity to what the world has despised and abhorred. 
There's this idea that everybody thought that tending a flock was worth nothing. It was work that had no value, no dignity. And Jesus said, actually, it's a way that you can understand the ministry of God himself. And it's a way that you can understand the work of a pastor and a spiritual leader. Jesus really is going to flip everything on its head. And and you got to keep that in mind because these men are in almost every way the least likely candidates for what they experienced that night. If anybody was going to have an experience where they encountered the revealed glory of God, nobody would have put these guys at the top of the list, right? You would have assumed it would be one of the priests. It would be one of the rabbis. It would be one of those who frequently were in the temple. It would be a religious leader. It would be somebody who had lived a life of service, somebody who had built schools, somebody who had advanced the community, somebody who had done something of great civic value, somebody of wealth, somebody of influence, somebody of position. Nobody would have said, oh, if the glory of God is going to appear tonight, my money is on the shepherd's sleeping in the field. Yet, that's exactly what happens. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. In the same regions, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Being a shepherd, it wasn't shift work. It definitely was not a nine-to-five job, and it wasn't a like, okay, day shift, time to tag in the night shift, you got the sheep, see you in eight hours kind of thing. They essentially would leave their families if they had a family, and they would go live with the sheep for an extended period of time, living this nomadic life, moving the herd around so that they could have access to a fresh pasture, to fresh grass, to clean water, to all of that. So these guys are away from home for a while. They probably don't have a tent. They don't have a lot of shelter. They're just going to sleep under the stars right alongside the sheep. But they're there, and they're faithful, and they're doing their job when all of the sudden an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. In Greek, that word glory is doxa. It's the word that we would get the English version, uh, the English word doxology, to speak of the glory of God. And doxa is kind of this idea that you would understand if you've ever been to a wedding and said of the bride, isn't she radiant today? Right, this wonderful day where there is just a beauty and a life and a vitality and an energy radiating off of this woman. Or if you've ever described a father as beaming with pride, right? It's more than just the size of the smile on his face. There's this sense of just joy in a child or joy in an accomplishment radiating off of that man. That's the idea of glory, that the beauty, the holiness, the majesty, the love, the mercy of God is just illuminating in a way that you would say God is glowing, but so much so that that radiance itself is almost so thick you could touch it. 
right? Almost like it is flowing off of God. And that's what these shepherds see, and it freaks them out. Now, last week we talked about Gabriel appearing to Mary and saying, hey, she's terrified, but she would have sensed the inherent goodness of Gabriel, so it's not a terror that, like, he's there to hurt her. But I don't think these shepherds and Mary ran in the same circles. For these guys, it would have been more a terror of conviction. Whether or not they had lived up to the billing that they were going to be nothing more than a bunch of thieves or not, it is safe to assume that they were not among the most pious men in Israel at the time. If you call somebody a thief long enough, before too long, they'll act the part. And my guess is there was a whole lot in their life where their assumption was not that the angel is here to bless and announce, but that the angel is somehow here for judgment. That they were, they were afraid of the holiness of God. Yet the angel, again, the mystery of the gospel, wants to put their hearts and their minds at ease. It says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you. You need a Savior, and God has provided one. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth lying in a manger. I'm going to kind of fast forward past that because we're going to come back and camp out on those three verses on Christmas Eve together as a community. But for today, I want to get us to verse 12. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel. So it's not just an angel showing up and an angel speaking and glory being there, but there is this moment of unbridled joy. There is this eruption of praise. It is as if the curtain of heaven gets peeled back just for an instant, and this choir of angels just goes for it, praising God, saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. They get to see the beauty of eternity on a hillside in Judea. And it would have changed them in absolutely unbelievable ways. I think about what that would have done for these men. Ordinary, poor, uneducated, despised, but somehow partakers of the glory of God. And there's no doubt that it would have changed the way that they saw themselves. They had been fed a steady diet over their lives that there was nothing special about them. It's no doubt they had come to see themselves as somewhat of a loser stuck in a dead-end job. And there was probably a soundtrack in their head that was like, look, my life is never going to be remarkable. It's never going to count for anything. I'm just going to muddle through it one more day at a time until finally this whole wretched thing is over. And all of a sudden, there was a moment of glory. And I think that moment would have been powerful enough that when they heard whispers of this idea that humans had been made in the image of God, they would have the courage to believe that maybe, just maybe, it applied to them. 
That then they would hear people talking about a psalm in the Hebrew Bible that said we are fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in our mother's womb, that they would start to think, you know what, maybe that applies to me and not just all the pretty people who go to synagogue. Maybe that applies to me, not just all the wealthy people who have a roof over their head and more than enough food. Maybe I'm in that story. Maybe I'm not quite the failure that I thought I was. It would have changed the way they saw themselves. It would have changed the way they saw each other, right? All of a sudden, they go from coworkers, maybe even friends, to being a community of men knit together by a shared experience of the glory of God, right? You got to believe that over the years that would come, they would find themselves getting back together frequently to say, no, you're not crazy for believing what you believe. I saw it too. I was there. I heard it. I experienced it. I'm still believing it. In some ways, maybe they become one of the earliest archetypes for the church that we are a community that gathers regularly to say, no, you're not crazy, I've seen it, I've heard it, I've experienced it, I believe it too, I'm still running the race. How can I encourage you? Will you encourage me? And I think there's no doubt that it would have changed the way they saw God. That there is something far more to this God than they had realized. And that somehow, this God wanted to invite them into his story. It all changes because they experienced the glory of God. And that's a really long wind-up to connect it to where we've been moving over the last couple of weeks. But over the last couple of weeks, we have been doing a series of messages called The Way of Peace, trying to prepare our hearts for Christmas, trying to say that we long for the peace of Jesus, yet we tend to go looking for it in all the wrong places. But the scripture lays out a really clear trail of where we would find this way of peace as we follow Jesus, not just at this time of year, but throughout our lives. That this way of peace is found in gratitude, not grumbling. That this way of peace is found in generosity, not greed. That's the idea behind all of our year-end giving. Right? Last week, we looked at the fact that this way of peace is found in surrender, not in control. And this week, we want to have the courage to say that the way of peace is found as we allow our souls to encounter the glory of God. See, here's the problem that I think all of us have as it comes into this Christmas season. I, I know I do, so I'll just preach to myself for a minute. If it's helpful, you can listen in. But I tend to expect way too much of the things of this world, right? It's just ingrained in me that if we can get the tree to look the right way and have the meal and the gifts, if we can just make everything line up the way that it's supposed to line up, then my soul will finally find what it's looking for. It feels like I perpetually ask way too much of the things of this world, but do not ask enough of God. And that's the part that we want to talk about today. Is it possible that we are robbing ourselves of joy because we are asking 
way too little of God, and we are settling for way too little in our lives. See, I think we read the story of the shepherds, and we think, okay, one more in this line of extraordinary biblical figures who gets to experience something of the glory of God. Moses gets a burning bush. Moses has this moment where he says, show me your glory, and God says, okay, but here's how we're going to have to do it. For your safety, I'm going to have to hide you in the cleft of a rock, and I'm going to have to cover you with my hand, and then I'm going to pass down the valley. And as I go by, you can just take a quick look at the tail end of my glory because if you saw it full on, it would light you up and you wouldn't survive the experience, right? We're like, oh yeah, right, Moses, he's doubly blessed. He gets a burning bush and the glory of God. That, right, there's Paul. He gets the glory of God on the road to Damascus and it changes his life. We, oh, the shepherds, yeah, they're just out there doing their job and all of a sudden, boom, glory of God. Of course it changes their lives. And somehow we've decided that that is a story that's only a available to spiritual elites, and we allow ourselves to linger and be mired in spiritual mediocrity because we are some, in some ways blaming God for the fact that he hasn't lit up our lives the way that he lit up the shepherds, right? Where we read this and we're like, well, yeah, no kidding. If God did this for me, I would never get over it. If God did that for me, I'd be set for life, man, I'd be in church like every Sunday. I'd go to like two community. I mean, I'd be, if God would just do that for me. But here's the thing. I don't think that's true. Remember, we only get a couple of quick hours of these shepherds' lives. They have this crazy moment. I mean, full disclosure, I have never had an angelic choir show up and sing while I'm praying. I've never had an angel appear. I've never had an angel walk in to the best of my knowledge and be like, hello, John, let's talk about the church. Never happened. Right? And I, I think we have this idea that somehow heroes get this and we are left out. That we're not meant to taste the same that we're not meant to experience the same. So we ask so little of God. But what if we had the courage to admit that what our souls are actually longing for is an encounter with the glory of God? What, what if we said, okay, it hasn't happened Moses style. It hasn't happened Saul turned Paul style. It hasn't happened shepherd style. But that doesn't mean it can't happen in my life. Right? These shepherds, after they have this moment, they would have then had to endure about 30 some odd years where nobody in Jerusalem or Bethlehem or anywhere was mentioning the name of Jesus. I bet you there were times in those 30 years where they were like, what in the world happened? I heard the angels, I saw it. I don't know. Maybe we ate something bad in the field that night. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I mean, how do you explain it? Because it was 30 years. And I think we want to believe if we can just get a big enough injection of glory, we'll be set for life. And I don't think that's the reality of the human condition. I think there would have been plenty of nights where these men asked themselves, were they believing a lie? But maybe, just maybe, they had the courage to 
ask God for an experience of his glory. I mean, I guess this is the point in the sermon where it's like, do you really believe that your heart was made to experience something of the glory of God? Or does that just seem like pie-in-the-sky aspirational nonsense that's going to have nothing to do with your Christmas? C.S. Lewis, by the way, would tell you to go for it. Many of you know the quote, but in his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis says this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. That you were made to somehow taste and see the goodness of God. That you were made to be a partaker of the glory of God. That you were made to experience something of what the shepherds did. That they're not just these distant mythical people. But in a sense, we are meant to experience what they did. And maybe the crazy thing would not only be to admit that we long for that, but to have the faith to believe that God longs for it as well. That God wants us to see and to taste and to experience his glory. In some ways, that's the whole point of the Christmas story, right? John tells us this in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Look, we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The shepherds met an angel heard a chorus, and get a brief visit with Jesus. We may never have met an angel. We may not get the light, and we may not get the angel choir, although the kids will come pretty close in just a few minutes. But we get more than a few passing minutes with Jesus. Do you see it? They just come, hi, how you doing? Okay, gotta go. And then 30 years. We know the rest of that boy's story. We know that he really did go on to confound expectations, that he is the one who will not just heal lepers, but also hug them. That he is the one who will restore sight to the blind. That he is the one who has the authority to call dead men out of tombs. And that he ultimately came into the full expression of his glory, not by claiming an earthly throne, but by dying on a wooden cross so that he could rise from the dead and sit on a heavenly throne at the right hand of his father. We know far more of Jesus than those men knew. And here's the thing. We're invited to encounter the glory of God routinely in our lives. You do not need to live your whole life hanging out in some kind of spiritual field wondering if tonight would be the night that God would zap you. We get to experience God's glory in prayer. We get to experience God's presence in worship. We get to experience God's presence in a few minutes as we come to a table together. See, I don't think God is holding out on us the way we think he is. I don't think he's playing a hard to get. He's not playing hide and seek with you. He's really not. 
the whole point of Christmas is that he's come rushing to us. And he's like, there's glory. The glory that your heart longs for, you just have to have eyes to see it. And you just have to have the courage to look for it. So Father in heaven, I want to pray that you would give us those eyes and I want to pray that you would give us that courage. God, I want to ask you to be with us in a unique way this morning. God, there are so many of us here who can identify with the shepherds. Some of us, because we feel like we also live on the margin of society. But a lot of us, because we feel like our sin and our guilt and our shame separates us from any possibility of experiencing you, yet alone your glory, yet alone your radiance, yet, yet alone the brilliance of who you are. And Jesus, that's what I'm going to ask you for this morning, that you would help us to fight back against that. God, would you help us make peace with the fact that, of course, we are unworthy? that we don't deserve what it is that you offer. That our sin and our shortcomings have put almost insurmountable distance between us and you. God, would you lead us to that moment to then cause our hearts to explode with faith and belief in you. That you came to this earth to rescue. You came to this earth to do what we could never do for ourselves. You came to this earth to offer yourself in our place, to absorb the penalty of our sin to make a way for us to know the glory of calling you Father and finding life with you that would never end. God, we need your help. We need to let go of so much of the expectation we impose on the things of this world. But God, give us the courage this morning to look at you to let Moses' prayer become our prayer. Show me your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
when you read the New Testament, the people that miss God the most are the people that are convinced they don't need a savior. The, the people who consistently get it wrong are the ones who think they've got it all figured out, think their doctrine is locked down tight, who think that they're better than everyone else. They wouldn't say it out loud, but that's how they carried themselves. They're the ones that get the sternest rebukes from Jesus, and they always walk away from an encounter with him, being the ones who have missed out on the grace and beauty that he offers. But you read the Gospels and you see the further somebody is from God, the more God's heart reaches out to them, the more they're willing to admit their need for a Savior, the more they're willing to be honest about their brokenness, the more they're willing to admit their need for mercy, the more the heart of God just rushes to them. And so if you somehow believe that your sin and your past is too heinous for God to do in your life what the shepherds did. You need to be reminded of what we proclaim when we come to this table week after week. That it's not about us, it's about what Jesus has done on our behalf. That his payment on the cross is greater than whatever sin you carried into the room. And that he didn't give his life on the wood of a cross just to give you a running start at eternity. He gave his life in your place to purchase you for himself. He hung on the wood of the cross and he said, it is finished. He did not say, that's a good start. You should be able to take it from here. He said, it's done, it's over. The price of your sin has been paid. So as you reflect on that in your life, perhaps you take a minute to confess sin to God. Perhaps you take a minute to say thank you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you in all of your neediness, in all of your brokenness, to come to a table. Maybe to taste a tiny shred of the glory of a God who would offer his life for you. As you're ready, why don't you come to one of these tables, take communion.